0: Welcome Welcome to to the the Better Better Call
1: Daddy Daddy. Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical.
0: You're not gonna believe this. Oh Oh my
1: God. God. Five stars.
2: Five and a half stars.
1: Grandpa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy.
2: Hey, hey. It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public.
1: introducing kevin nahai he takes on personal responsibility and overcomes challenges by owning them kevin welcome
0: green arena hi how are you
1: good how are you
0: i'm well thank you so
1: i want to take it back before your college experience i want to know like you from childhood
0: okay so take it back to childhood what would you like to know
1: what were your parents like
0: Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. My parents are immigrants. We are Persian Jews. So they're from Iran, but they're Jewish. So in Los Angeles, there's a large Persian Jewish community, but in the world there is not. It's a very small portion of the population. And most of them came to LA. Some of them went to New York. So I I was born and raised here with my siblings and my parents were very, very hardworking and extremely strict. And education was extremely important in our family. And, you know, there was no two ways about getting good grades and being well behaved and, you know, sort of following the straight and narrow track, which I, of course, did not follow. I was a total troublemaker and I started playing drums when I was six years old. So, you know, I was this young kid in kindergarten and I was like, okay, I want to become a drummer. So I harassed my parents about it a whole bunch, and finally they got me a little kitty drum set, and I really excelled, and I've been playing drums now for, I don't know, 22 years or whatever, and uh, I played professionally in college, so drums were my, my first passion, and of course, you know, my, my parents were not happy about it, because they were like, you know, how are you going to make a living and support a family and all of this stuff? And eventually in my own heart, I decided to make a switch away from being a professional drummer to doing other things that I was equally passionate about. But, you know, also as a kid, I was a very, very anxious kid. I never had any stage fright. I loved to be the center of attention. I was very social, but internally I was extremely anxious and I used to get migraines and I had a lot of stomach issues and stuff. And I was also bullied a lot for being chubby. I was a chubby kid. So I say all of this to say that the things I experienced later in life, in my college years and early twenties, definitely showed themselves in small glimpses in my childhood. And that's usually how it is. We can usually track the trauma that we experience in our twenties and thirties back to things that happened when we were kids. We're just not really aware of it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my early years in a nutshell. I love that. There was
1: something you were passionate about, though, from such a young age, because I don't feel like all kids have that, but some that do have, like, star
0: quality. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a very passionate person for better or worse, and the things that I really care about, whether it's drums or, you know, I was really into soccer or things I studied in college and all of the different things that I've pursued— I'm extremely passionate about. And then the things that I don't really care about, I don't care about them at all, you know, which has sort of gotten me into trouble. It's like, you know, I was always good in languages. So I I got perfect scores on my reading and writing SATs, but I didn't care about math. So I got like a 500, you know, I basically like failed the math SAT because I didn't care about it. So I had no passion for it. Don't you think that that's something wrong with our education
1: system that like we have to be well-rounded at everything. Like how come we can't focus on our strengths? Like, I feel like later in life, that's good to do.
0: I totally agree with you. I think the logical answer to why can't we focus on our strengths is that as a kid, you don't know what your strengths are. And so they want to make you well-rounded. I think the, the thing that we do to adolescents that's really criminal, and, and I was definitely a victim of this, is that we tell a 17, 18 year old kid to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their life. When we stick them in college, you got to pick a major, you got to pursue a track, you know, whatever, whatever, you have to take all of these general education courses. And the skill that I learned later in life that I wish someone taught me when I was 16 or 18 or 20, and this may be controversial, but I really believe it is Stop trying to improve at things that you are bad at and instead become a master at things that you are naturally good at. Right. If we can shift that paradigm, then we can become so much more productive and less anxious and less ashamed of the fact that we're terrible at certain things. You know, we don't have this enormous pressure hanging over our head to know exactly what we want to do and be incredibly successful at a young age because we're trying to be good at 10 different things, you know. How did your parents respond to your anxiousness? Well, they didn't, in part because they didn't know I had it, which, you know, I didn't know I had it. When I was in 3rd grade it got really bad and my mom put me in therapy and I had these crippling migraines from anxiety and from being such a worried nervous kid and then I went to therapy for like 3 months and then my headaches went away which is, you know, really amazing.
1: That uh, is amazing.
0: Yeah, that helped. But aside from that, I was the third kid in the family. I was the baby of the family and I was always very outgoing and sociable and jovial and fun. So when you have a kid like that, who's last in birth order, you look at him and you kind of think, well, this kid doesn't really have any problems. You know, like they're, they're probably fine, especially because my, my older siblings, they sort of took up the spotlight in terms of emotional attention because their issues, their emotional issues were more visible, I guess. My parents didn't really respond to my anxiety aside from when I was in third grade in that short stint. And I think that's part of the reason that it you know, caught up with me much later in life. But that's okay. No parent is going to do a good job. And I'm not a parent, but yet, God willing, I will be. I think the goal is to mess your kids up less than your parents messed you up and I think you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes I mean do you, do you have children four you have four okay so <laughs> you hope that obviously you want to do a great job but you know you're gonna make mistakes so you just hope that you will mess them up less than your parents messed you up
1: okay I like that barometer okay that that's okay because I was definitely doing way worse
0: than my kids are doing now <laughs> well that's amazing that shows that you've really grown and worked through why why were you doing way worse what what's your story well my mom tried to be stricter
1: than my dad was but my dad was kind of a workaholic mine is too yeah he ran a company with his parents for 45 years they owned yeah. a manufacturing company and he just really felt like if I had good grades and you know I was coming home by curfew there were there weren't a lot of rules. You know, and we had pretty good open communication, like there wasn't much I couldn't talk to my dad about and hence me doing this show with him now, like we've had some pretty crazy conversations. (laughs) You know, like I asked my dad, have you ever called a 1-900 number? I asked my dad like what he thinks about somebody who's been sex trafficked and now runs a nonprofit, you know, like.
0: Wow, pretty insane.
1: Yeah. I'm honestly like trying to push his buttons a little bit and trying mm-hmm. to help him have open new, him up a little. Yeah, yeah. New brain connections. I'm like asking him what he thinks about ayahuasca and doing mushrooms for a year and sperm donor kids and all kinds of subjects because why well, not? Right. Like sure. yeah, if you can have those conversations, then we're all going to learn something.
0: Of course. Yeah. Even if you don't agree, you'll learn. Thank you for sharing that with me.
1: Okay. So let's move a little bit further on. You were saying, was it 2004 that was your freshman Uh, year?
0: No, no. My freshman year was 2011.
1: 2011. Okay. Right. So 2011, the shit kind of hit the fan.
0: Yeah. The shit hit the fan. I was diagnosed with an incurable disease, which I, I still have. I became severely depressed. I couldn't eat. I got down to 112 pounds. Then as a result of the sort of emotional trauma of this, I... Actually, became severely anorexic, and I started starving myself. You know, first my body was starved, and then I continued the starvation because I was very traumatized, and everything in my life was out of control. And the only thing that I could control was my food. You know, and I, I basically thought, well, at least if you look like this already, I, I hated myself. And and the thing about when you hate yourself is that it begets more self hatred. When you hate yourself you're not motivated to wake up and say okay let's fix all the problems you want to punish yourself and it's a cruel joke that your psyche plays on you you know you you hate yourself and you hate what what your body has done and you hate what your mind has done and instead of nourishing and loving yourself and growing out of that you decide to punish yourself even more and for some people it's being an alcoholic for some people it's cutting you know, for me, it was starving myself and, and being severely anorexic. And I was also battling depression, I had panic attacks, I was confronting crippling anxiety for the first time in my life, you know, and then those things got better. And I got a little bit healthier. And I got a great nutrition therapist to help me sort of overcome the anorexia. And then I, I started dating women. And I realized that I had really terrible codependency, and i had really terrible abandonment issues and control issues. And you know, fear of being left alone and things like that. So then I had to, you know, get my ass back into therapy and work with with coaches and read books and learn how to overcome all of that. I always say, say that, you know, every time you overcome a challenge in your life, God will serve you another challenge of equal or greater difficulty. The thing is that the difficulty of the challenge is not measured by the challenge itself. The difficulty is measured by your ability to respond to it and your ability to handle it. So if I give you a really serious challenge in 2012 and you overcome it and you're doing well, and then I give you another serious life challenge in 2013, well, if you overcame the one in the prior year, now you are better equipped to handle the one in the subsequent year and the next year and the next year, right? So even though you maybe serve these challenges over and over again as a test of your resolve and a test of your strength, it's not the challenge itself that is that difficult or that terrible. I mean, terrible things happen all the time, right? But it's your ability to handle the challenge and to persevere and get through it that determines how difficult that challenge actually is. You can give two people the same challenge in life, let's say the loss of a loved one, God forbid, right? And one of them is going to crumble completely. And the other one is going to be sad and they're going to mourn, but eventually they'll find a blessing in it and they'll be able to move forward with their life and use that experience to heal and then help heal others. Two completely different responses to the same exact circumstance. And it took me a very long time to be able to develop this way of seeing challenges. For a long time, I saw myself as a poor fucker, excuse my language, who you know, the universe hated me and just wanted to keep serving me problem after problem. Right. And and I didn't get it. I didn't get that it was a test. I didn't get that I'm supposed to use these experiences to try to strengthen and heal and grow and correct myself. Is there anything that your parents could have said that would have helped? Yes and no. No, to the extent that if somebody is not willing or ready to be helped, there is no sermon you can give them. There's no handholding you can do. There is no intervention you can perform that's going to make them ready. It's exactly like a drug addict. You can stick them in rehab and they can get clean, but they'll come out clean, not sober. You know, They'll be clean off the drugs, but they won't be sober in their spirit. And the same was true for me. And the same is true for Even if you're overweight and you don't want to lose weight, you know, I can stick you in a gym with a personal trainer, but if you don't want to change in your heart, nobody's going to help. And my parents and my siblings, they died trying to help me. And I feel terrible that I didn't accept their help because I wasn't ready. So no, to the extent that I wasn't ready to be helped until I was ready. And so they they couldn't have done anything. Yes, to the extent that in my experience, when you see somebody who's acutely suffering with something self-destructive. When you see that they're doing something self-destructive, you want to avoid coaching them or correcting them. And you just want to tell them, hey, I'm a little concerned about you. I don't know if you're concerned about you, but if you are, just know that I'm here. You don't have to tell me anything. We can just treat it like a Tuesday. If you want to just go get ice cream and not talk about anything, that is fine. Just know that I am in your corner. Nobody ever said that to me. Everyone was like, I'm so worried about you. What can I do to help? You're denying this problem. It's getting worse, so forth and so on. And that ostracized, that made me want to ostracize people. You know, Now I have clients who are very treatment resistant. They, they don't want to get help. Prospective clients. you know, I'll be prospecting with them and I can see that they're not ready to change and I'll see that they're not ready for coaching. So instead, what I'll just tell them is, hey, look, I see some things on, her, on the horizon that I think could improve if you ever feel like you're ready to make some changes, just know that I am here. And if you just want someone to talk to, not even about your issues, but just about how your day was because you, you know, other people don't understand you, that's okay too. Just know that I'm here for that as well.
1: That's really awesome. What
0: was your breaking point where you're like I'm ready? Oh, I had several. I mean, one of them was that I almost committed suicide. That was a big one. It was very scary for me. Damn. Um, you know to get to the point where you think that if you are not alive tomorrow people will not notice the difference that's a very low point to get to so that was a turning point for me another turning point for me was when my you know my organs were failing like you know i was sleeping all day i procreation issues you know i like i had a uh, male dysfunction issues i couldn't eat anything you know my hormones were all messed up my anxiety was through the roof. My kidneys had problems. It was like things that I, that I had never experienced before. So I realized that you know my body was seriously giving up on me. But I think the biggest turning point in my life honestly occurred when I had this conversation with a mentor of mine. I was about 23 or 24 at the time. And in this conversation, he basically taught me that nobody is going to come into my life and clean up the mess for me. He, he taught me for the first time in my life, the concept of personal responsibility. And it was a huge slap in the face because it was, it was hurtful. I did not feel supported, right? But basically what he was saying was, look, the, these are your issues and I can have compassion for you and I can, you know, try to help support you. But the best thing that I can do is tell you that not God and not your mom and not a doctor and not anybody else is going to be able to come in and really fix these issues, It's on you and and you do have the ability to do it, but you have to stop victimizing yourself and you have to stop thinking that someone's gonna fix this for you. When he told me that, it was a big slap in the face, but everything in my life changed from that point forward. Damn,
1: how are you able to relax now? How do you put work aside, not be
0: overwhelmed, not be anxious? First of all, I meditate every day, twice a day. And that has done wonders for my anxiety. That's a huge thing. Secondly, I am much more able to compartmentalize and keep each problem or each issue or each task in its true perspective. Meaning if I'm worried about something work-wise, I don't allow that to snowball into, well, what am I going to do about my financial future? And then what if I can't support a wife? And then what if I can't support kids? Does that mean that I'm not a man? if I'm not a man, then should I even be alive? You know, like when we, we have the seed of the thought and then we start snowballing, you know, I, I remind myself now that I'm not responsible for my first thought, but I'm responsible for my second thought. And I'm not responsible for my first thought, but I'm responsible for my first action. So now when that first thought pops into my mind, I'm able to slow myself down and say, okay, let's put this in its own container. Do we really need to deal with this right now? Or can we put our, our attention back on what we, what we need to focus on at the moment. That stops me from globalizing and sort of catastrophizing, you know, and then Rina, honestly, I do the basic stuff. Like I said, I meditate, I exercise every day. You know, I call friends. I have a coach that I work with so that I'm, I'm not telling people do as I say, not as I do. I'm actually doing it right there alongside with them. It's really having an extraordinary life where you feel grateful and positive and happy and healthy. None of it is rocket science. It's just applying the principles to your life and doing them when you don't feel like doing it. Nothing is, it's simple, but not easy. It's simple. Like everything I can teach you is is simple to understand. It's just not easy to actually have the discipline to do these things every day. Right, like you said that
1: you laid in bed and didn't get out of bed. Yeah. How did you go from that to finding a therapist and, you know, making yourself not responsible for your second thought.
0: Well, it took many years, it doesn't happen overnight.
1: Right. Know? But still like you were pretty rock bottom at one place, like finding a therapist and finding a coach and motivating to make those huge changes. That's, that's really tough work. It's really tough. How did you find those resources?
0: You get to a point where you no longer have a choice your only other choice is to give up and die. And that sounds morbid, but really, like, if you're going to live that way, you're not that far off from dying. And I almost tried to die and realized that I didn't want to do it. So, you know, if I had the will to continue living, if there, if there was something, however small for me to pick myself up and keep going then if i can do that i can do the next thing and if i can do the next thing then i can do the next thing in terms of how to find resources i mean there's a there's a million different ways usually i think word of mouth is the best way you know talk to somebody you trust and see who they work with if you don't have any resources available to you then anybody who's listening to this podcast can call or text or dm me anytime and i will be a resource to you i won't charge you just to talk, to have a conversation, just so I can be there for you. But it's funny, you know, I, I say that on every podcast, and I know that people out there are suffering. And I always say, please use me as a resource. Feel free to reach out. And, you know, I've said this in front of audiences of like 2000 people. You know how many people do it? Like two, you know? Well, I'm glad a few have. I'm glad a few have too. But the point that I'm making is that even when help is right there in front of you, and someone's serving it to you on a silver platter, you have to have the willingness to take it. You have to want more for your life, right? And I'm not asking anyone to do anything complicated. I'm asking people to send a two-second text message that might help them. It might change the quality of their lives. You have to want more for your life. And I can't teach that to anybody. There was a point where I didn't want more for my life, you know. but as soon as I decided that I want more, I took the first step and the next step, and the next step. And there is help out there. It is available.
1: Tell me what more you want now.
0: What do I want out of my life now? Yeah. You know, I believe that the final stage of healing is to use what happened to you in order to heal other people. And I want to do that on a very large scale. You know, I want to continue speaking to large audiences. I want to be on every podcast I can, I'm working on my first book, which hopefully will be out next year. You know, I'm a family man. I wanna have a wife and kids soon, God willing. I want to continue doing everything that, that I'm doing, grow physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, you know, but this morning I was I was thinking, you know, I'm not a millionaire and I'm not famous and I'm not, you know, any of these extravagant things that, you know, we see on Instagram all the time. But I was laying in bed this morning thinking it's like 830 in the morning and I'm thinking my life is unbelievable. You know, I am so incredibly lucky. You know, how am I doing? I'm, I'm doing unbelievable. I live in this incredible city. I'm healthy. I'm happy. I have the ability to make money from helping other people, you know, and even if I never get anything else that I want in my life, that is okay we tend to focus on the one thing in our life that is not going perfectly rather than the 99 things in our lives that are going incredibly well. I'm an overachiever and I'm constantly worrying about the future and constantly thinking about what I want and where I want to be. And I'm starting to shift this paradigm for myself of focusing on the 99 things that are going very well rather than the one thing or two things that may not be going perfectly. And that really helps me stay grounded.
1: That's amazing. Tell me why you got that heart tattoo.
0: Well, I got this when I was 21. It's my first and only tattoo, probably my last tattoo. My mom had a heart attack when she found out. It's a heart on my wrist because I wear my heart on my sleeve, very vulnerable and honest and open, and I have nothing to hide. And, you know, it's just sort of a, a reminder of who I am. I love that.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, Jewishly, like, what's your connection there?
0: Growing for sure. I grew up very reform. We would go to temple on the high holidays and I had a bar mitzvah and that was about it. Now I meet with a rabbi every Thursday. You know, So much of what I teach and what I talk about and just my spirit is stuff that is in the Torah and stuff that rabbis have been teaching for like thousands of years. It's just written in a different perspective. But the reason that I'm growing in terms of Judaism and the reason that I took an interest in it is that I realized that Judaism is, you know, and many other religions as well, they're like the best guidebook for living an honest life, having integrity, being grateful, improving yourself, you know, improving your conscious contact with God, improving your conscious contact with other people. You know, all of this stuff is like, if you really take it out of the religious context and bring it like really apply it to your life there, it's incredibly useful. And all of it, every self-help book that you've ever read, like you can find those principles in these ancient religious teachings, you know? I'm not a religious person and I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I'm I'm definitely growing in that area and taking much more of an active interest.
1: I know that you talk about dating and about relationships. I saw some videos you did on that. Like, do yeah. you play on like J-Swipe and the, the Jewish dating apps? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I have before. I'm not on any dating apps right now. I Deleted them all a little while ago. I recently got out of a relationship. So after we parted ways, I took a little break from dating and you know, I obviously dated my I deleted my dating apps before then and then just didn't reactivate them. I think that uh, these dating apps are a great way to connect people, especially during COVID when there's no there's no way to meet people in, in person. But there is a downside. There are a couple of downsides to the dating apps. One is that they can really take the wind out of a person's sails. They can really make you feel defeated. Like if you keep getting matches that you're not attracted to, or if the conversations go nowhere, or if you, you know, keep matching with weirdos, it can kind of make you feel like, oh my God, what's wrong with me. Many of my clients experience that frustration. And then the other problem with these dating apps that, that I, I think this era of online dating has ushered in is being non-committal. And dating three or four different people at once and having three or four different conversations at once. And if you're non-committal in the dating phase, then it's very easy to be non-committal once it gets a little bit more serious, you know, and then it's very easy to be non-committal once you're actually in a relationship. So I've experienced in my own life and in my, my clients' lives as well that a person who is able to date one person at a time and focus on one person at a time has a significantly higher chance of having a successful relationship than a person who is spinning multiple plates. And the dating apps are set up such that they encourage you to spin multiple plates. Personally, that's not my style, but I also just don't think it's, it's healthy for dating as a whole. I don't advise people, you definitely should be on them or you definitely should delete them. If they make you feel defeated and demoralized, then delete the shit out of them. If you like them and they help you meet people, then go for it. That would be my two cents.
1: What are your thoughts on dating for marriage?
0: I really don't see what the point is otherwise, and that's a new development for me. You know, I had a girlfriend for four years from ages twenty-one to twenty-five, and I wasn't ready to get married. And I don't regret the relationship at all. You know, I'm very happy that I was in it. Uh, I loved her very much, and we had a beautiful relationship. But you know, then I'm twenty-five years old, and she was twenty-three, and it's like okay, well, now we have to break up. Now what do we do? So look, if you're in college and you have a college sweetheart or something like that, which is my situation, and you want to stay together and you want to date, sure, who am I to say that you shouldn't? But once you get like past the age of 25, 26, once you're nearing 30, and certainly if you're over 30, I don't know what the hell people are doing dating just to date or to have friends with benefits or to have fun or any of that, I mean, first of all, I don't know how people have the time because dating is very time intensive. And I don't know if like people just don't have a job or, or what the deal is that, secondly, I don't know how people have the emotional bandwidth to date just for fun. You know, I personally get attached and I get invested very heavily. So for me to date with just no end game and no intention and no real commitment would be very emotionally draining. And also look, you know, my perspective as a dating coach and as a relationship coach and you know, talking to people about their lives, their happiness, their confidence, everything, my perspective is that you can have a very happy life in the absence of a relationship. You, know, you, you can be happy being single, but if you are in a relationship, the quality of your life will be the quality of your relationship. If you've got major problems in your relationship, they are going to bleed into your life. They're going to bleed into your work, into your friendships and so forth and so on, right? If you're single, be single or date with the intention of having an amazing relationship. But if you're single, don't date with the intention of just nothing. You know, let me see where it goes or whatever, because you could very easily end up in a relationship that could ruin your life if you're not intentional about it, and if you're not careful about it.
1: Didn't you say that that relationship saved your life though?
0: Yeah, definitely. Which is why I say I don't regret it. And if you're at that age, it it makes sense. If you want to have a relationship, go for it. But saying, you know, once you get older than that, I do not see the point in just having a girlfriend just for fun or a boyfriend for that matter, you know?
1: Have you thought about a matchmaker?
0: Yeah. Why, you know one? I do. Yeah. Sure. Send her my way. Why not? Okay, I will. <laughs> or, or him. Yeah. You know, I, I also definitely believe that we find our person based on our own virtue, based on our righteousness, based on our decisions, based on our attitude, based on our beliefs. You know, so so many of us, and I used to be this person, so many of us have this expectation or this imaginary, illusory belief that the universe or the cosmos or God or a stork, someone's going to like drop, you know, your Prince Charming or whatever in front of your doorstep and you're just going to walk out of your house and there's your soulmate is going to be and you don't have to do anything to earn it. But I believe that there are no neutral decisions in the world of dating and relationships. Every decision that we make either repels the person that we're meant to be with or it brings that person closer, right? And so we always think that we have complete autonomy to do whatever we want, to act however we want, to think however we want, and we'll just get lucky when it's God's timing and that person will be placed right in front of us. But what I have learned and what I believe is that the decisions that you make are either gonna get you closer to that person or they're gonna take you farther away from that person. Sometimes those decisions are good, sometimes those decisions are bad. Either way, it's the aggregate of those decisions that is going to bring you to that person. There's a, there's a phrase in Arabic that says, trust in God, but tie your camel. And basically what it means is if your camel runs away because you didn't tie it up, well, God's not going to save that problem for you. Have your faith in God, you know, and, and and trust in God's timing, but you have to do the work yourself. You know, you can't just sit on your ass smoking weed all day and hope that like the perfect person's gonna waltz into your life you've got to do the work too.
1: I 100% agree with that. Actually, I wanted to bring up two things, but right before I met my husband, my mom went through breast cancer and I found out like right before I was going on a free trip to Israel and her sister is a nurse and was like coming in and I was like, you know, like this can be super stressful. I was like, do you want me to come in too? Like, I feel like your sister would take better care of you and then have out after she leaves. And after I go on this trip where I can pray for you at the wall, I will be there for like the reconstruction and like, we can have our time then. And so I ended up doing that. And I was like in between working on seasons of a television show and the timing worked out oh, wow. really well. Yeah. But taking care of my mother, going through reconstruction and like, it was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was like really painful for her. We have a hard relationship as it is. Mm. And then, yeah, I met my husband a month later and I was like, man, by doing something hard, like God totally rewarded me, you know, for sure. for sure. I felt like those things were connected. And then I wanted to ask you one more thing. Did you see affection from your parents. And how do you think your relationship of your parents is going to play into your future family?
0: Yeah, I definitely got affection from them more from my mom than from my dad. My dad is a workaholic and, you know, less of an emotive affectionate type. Uh, He is that way very much so with my sister, but my brother and me definitely received less of that from my dad. Maybe it's a man thing. My mom was always very affectionate towards us. And you know, I, I envision myself being incredibly affectionate toward my family. But one pattern that I have seen is that people tend to become either a carbon copy of one of their parents or the polar opposite. Like my brother has evolved to be a carbon copy of my dad and my sister has evolved to be a carbon copy of my mom. I am very, very opposite from both my mom and my dad. So it'll be interesting how that plays out into my future family.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful, amazing, wonderful story.
0: Thank you, Rena. God bless you. Thank you for having me on and let's uh, be in touch. I'm going to be introducing you to a matchmaker. All right. I'm looking forward to it. (sighs) Have an awesome night. You too. Bye. Bye.
1: Now let's switch it over to Grandpa.
2: This is a beautiful interview with Kevin. Let's face it. Are we talking about the lesson of life is that whether you go to school and you get guidance, whether you have a mentor or whether your parents encourage you and try to give you an example, all these things are wonderful. But if you want to have a, a proper relationship, if you want to make something, whether it's a job or career or try to be good at anything, it takes personal intensity. You have to go for it. You have to work at it you have to be able to pick yourself up and you have to do it. You can have all the guidance in the world. You can have all the lessons in the world. But if you don't go out and do something with your life, are you really, really even alive? God has put us on this earth to give you the choice to do whatever you want. Constructively, he's given you some guidelines with the Torah, but you have to go out there and you have to work hard in anything that you want to accomplish in life. But it is very difficult to accomplish anything if you don't have the self-confidence And you don't have the pick-me-up to overcome whatever adversities are in your way.
1: I think he called it personal responsibility.
2: I've used that term as well, personal responsibility. And it really pertains to everything in your life, personal responsibility. And so many people out there have excuses and excuses of why they don't win or why they this doesn't happen to them, and why that didn't happen to me, and why I'm at the short end of the stick. Remember the line, even with Jim Blunker, when I said how the Raiders got off to a hot start, that he was the broadcaster was after his career was over. And I said, Well, we were going really strong. We were six and two, and then we finished the season eight and eight, but it was all those injuries. And what did he say? He says, There's no excuses whatsoever in winning and losing. There is no excuses. Whatever it takes to win is what you have to do. You can't blame anything but yourself if you don't win. What did he also come to the conclusion of at the end was that he would get these anxiety attacks of what's the next move in life. And he'd let little things even bug him. And then he started again, pursuing things that make him feel better and what he can be good at and reaching out to others rather than just being concerned with yourself also helps the formula in life. It's not just supposed to be about yourself. It's supposed to also be where you leave your mark on how helpful and how you can help other people.
1: Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn.